This podcast is part of the Big Heads Media Podcast Network. Go to BigHeadsMedia.com for more great podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of the 15 Minutes of Football Podcast, where each topic is discussed in approximately 15 minutes. Last week's episode by a political expert and journalist from Kenya, David Mbua, was labelled the best podcast ever, Carlin Boyle. Uh, son of Susan Boyle was labelled a, a legend. I get shakes of the head. I'm probably, he's probably tired of that as well now. To be fair, it's the 88th time I've said it. Not really Susan Boyle's son. Um, he is a, a legend. He is a prediction genius, and all round David and Boer, the uh, the big fan of the podcast, his favourite person of all time. So naturally, I decided not to have him on this week, not through any fault of his own. Decided to replace him with the equally Wonderful Madison, not the Leicester City midfielder, instead the Liverpool Echo writer, Matt Addison. Yes, hello, good to be back. It's been a couple of months, I think, and I think we've got some interesting topics to get into today. I think so, you see, good good plug that, good plug it. And we've also got Jordan, back from his sabbatical. Back again, back from York for the second week running. Yeah, to be fair, yeah, I I mean, I did kind of of replace you with Callum at the last minute, but of course the results were fantastic, so hopefully you have reached (laughs) out to your batteries and uh, delivered something to combat the legend that is Mr. Callum Boyle. But um, yeah, it's four topics. I should always, I should say as well at the start, always been listening to some podcasts and don't forget to leave a review, don't forget to subscribe, don't forget to listen, that's a good start as well. But I leave that at the end, and sometimes we don't get there. So, yeah, a little plug there. Listen, subscribe, and review would mean a lot. Okay, to the four topics then. So looking for time-bound purposes now, so we're not going to preview anything too much in too much detail, but we're going to talk a bit philosophically, I suppose, and maybe a bit a bit of an analysis on a broad-term uh, level. Uh, first topic at hand, really, which I think is quite an interesting one, is uh, how different uh, would we think club football is to international football now? I say that because we, I feel, Matt, that when we came into this tournament, Gareth Southgate and you know, particularly England in general, were sort of judged a little bit like we would judge clubs in the Premier League for style of play, for how we expect them to deliver on the football field, um, the players we expect to see playing because they do well in the Premier League. But in reality, international football is... It's very, very different, isn't it, to the league football that we all know and love? Yeah, very much so. I think it's it's different in a few ways. And I think we've seen it, as you say, with what Gareth Southgate's done with his team selection, with certain things. I think there's certain um, selections and, and certain lineups that possibly you know, only Gareth Southgate would have picked. I think if anybody else had been England manager, they would have been slightly different. But I think he's been sort of vindicated in that. I'm thinking, you know, leaving out Jack Grealish, for example, or playing a three at the back and, and things like that, changing things about, which, yeah, in club football, you, you probably wouldn't see it, as you say. Um, but obviously, international football is... I mean, club football is about results as well, but international football, I think if if Gareth Southgate had got one or two different results, we'd be talking about him in a slightly different way. Maybe he's, you know, stupid rather than brave, or maybe he's, he's done something wrong. But you kind of you're more reliant aren't you in international football on those big calls you know a tournament comes about normally every two years obviously it's been slightly longer for, for this one slightly shorter until the next one but you know essentially all of that work that you get to do and you don't get to, to sort of be with your teammates and as, as, as a coach you don't get to coach these players regularly it's a case of meeting up every few months and essentially it all comes down to, to what you do in the space of 
a few games every couple of years. And I suppose it's more difficult to prepare for that. It's more difficult to judge them for that. But I think for me, that's what Gareth Southgate is, is a, is a really good international manager because he knows how to get those results. He's not necessarily as tactically as good as, as maybe some of the, the best coaches. He's not going to improve players in the same way that you know Guardiola or a Klopp or someone like that might do. But I think you know the only fair thing to say is that what he has done in this tournament and the last one is he's beaten the teams that have been in front of England. He's got England further than the most managers of late. And I think that is down to, to him being suited to international football and not necessarily to, to club football the same way. Yeah, no, well put. Um, share many of the same thoughts, really. And, and you touched on Klopp and Guardiola and, and Jordan. We talk, I mean, I sort of touched on this last week as well, but nice to hear your thoughts as well on the idea of maybe, with a few exceptions, I think maybe I'm thinking Italy on this, but with taking them out of the equation, I th- is it quite unrealistic to build a fluid attacking philosophy that essentially rips through teams with such... Um, vigour that we see with, maybe with some of the clubs like Manchester City and Liverpool is it a bit unrealistic to do that is it more international football based on okay give the balls to the individuals see what they can do you know a lot less focused on specific intricate tactics yeah to an extent I definitely think so and I think Matt kind of alluded to it there the, the main difference is really the, the length of time that a coach really gets to spend with a certain group of players and with the squads because it really limits how much of a rubber stamp they can actually put onto a team and how they play. And you both mentioned Klopp and Pep Guardiola. I don't think that they would maybe get that same play style through in the the, the length of time they actually would get to spend with, with the international squad if they were in international football. So I think that really is the, the main difference. And it, it means that international coaches maybe have to be a lot more flexible uh, because of that as well. Uh especially when they're limited to a pool of players. They can't just go out and buy someone new to fit in their system. Uh, like, I mean, we've seen Klopp in particular go out and buy Virgil van Dijk because he really needed a player for that system. You mm. can't do that as an international manager. And because of that, I think uh, it really, it, it's a different job completely. And as you kind of said, I think Southgate is very well suited to doing it and maybe they wouldn't be quite as well suited to it. Alongside that, they, they maybe wouldn't be as happy with the pay bracket. Yeah, no, that's that's also true. Um, I think that it's interesting. You, yeah, you sort of you sort of touch on that really, and and uh, you don't have the finance as well. Like, it's also something I've noticed really that if you look at some of the winning uh, managers of, of of times gone by, you've had obviously thinking World Cup now and European Championship. We've got Didier Deschamps for France, uh, Fernando Santos for Portugal, uh, Joachim Lerva for for Germany, uh, and then even Vincente Del Bosque before him. Um, I don't think I'm being too harsh when I say that neither of them are, you know, none of these names really are um, big vessels of charisma. Um, and I think I say that in the nicest possible way. Uh, do you think charisma is something that we... Um, you know, we see it so much in, in club football, but do you think sometimes it's less about the manager when it comes to the international tournament? I mean, we're talking about tactics and everything like that, but is it more about, I suppose, when you've got a bigger manager, a bigger ego, more pressure, more expectancy on the nation that already has a lot of pressure and expectancy from its own media, particularly ours? I don't think I'd say Gareth Southgate is necessarily... I mean, he's not as, as charismatic, say, as a Klopp or a Guardiola no. in that sort of way. But I think what he does really well is sort of manage the expectations, manage the, the squad really well. I mean, in previous, you know, examples of, say, another manager had, had left Jack Greenish out, for example, that yeah. would have become a much bigger thing. I thought he did really well with the, the Trent Alexander-Arnold sort of thing of should he be in, should he not be in? 
obviously made that slightly more difficult for himself by leaving him out, then bringing him back in, then he gets injured. But you know, generally speaking, there wasn't a huge debate over that. I think there was obviously some debate. There's always going to be some level of it. But I think in the end, he kind of got to the to the right decision without there being a huge amount of fuss. I think you know, even leaving out a, a Jaden Sancho, he left Dominic Calvert-Lewin out of the, the 23, didn't he, for one of the, the group games, I think it was. All of the things like that, I think under under previous managers, maybe they would have been you know, sort of bigger. There would have been a, a much bigger fuss made about them. But I think, you know, one of his strengths is, is just that he kind of keeps everyone calm, kind of just does all of those sorts of things. And I think that's that's a crucial difference. But I also think there's a bit of a difference. You, you mentioned the, the coaches there that have been successful, even the teams. You think of the Portugal team mm. that, that won the last Euros. I don't think the quality is necessarily as good at international level. I don't think you have to be, you know, an absolutely top level manager. I don't think you have to be the best team in the world to, to go and win these tournaments. I think it's it's more a case of, of just getting getting it right at, at any particular given time. I think, you know, if you put a Bayern Munich, a PSG, Man City, a Liverpool, if you put them into the Euros, they'd be by far and away the best team. The, the quality isn't necessarily there. It's just a case of, you know, game by game, making sure you get it right. And I think that's what England have, have been doing. I mean, you, know, you can say, you know, at the World Cup, they didn't particularly play anybody brilliant until they play Croatia and then they go out. Similarly, sort of a, a relatively straightforward sort of thing this time. But you can only beat what's in front of you. You can only sort of do what you can do in that tournament. And I think that's what, what Gareth and his players have, have done really well this time around is just take each game as it comes. They're not necessarily the best team but you don't necessarily have to be a world-class team to, to win these tournaments. I think we've seen enough examples of that in the past. Mm. How important is pragmatism, Jordan, as opposed to going all-out attack and trying to, you know, I, I suppose, dominate an opponent? Because at times you see quite a few games, I suppose, and in many occasions, organisation is so important. I know we, we touch on England quite a lot, but it, it's common quite across the board. I mean, the successful French team of the World Cup 2018 were very, very organised and defensively disciplined. Didn't quite carry over all the way in this tournament. It started that way uh, with a 1-0 victory over Germany and then it all went a bit haphazard when they ran out of left-backs in the uh, Switzerland game. <laughs> but um, generally, how important would you say pragmatism is? And Because and, and it, it's something I think we turn our nose up a lot in, in club football because we see all of this... Um, you know, the gag and pressing the tick attack are the wonderful philosophies that we have on show. And pragmatism gets a bad name in that sense. But when it comes to the Euros and you've not got time, it's probably the most effective and easy way to set up a team to be competitive, to take the chances at the other end when they can get them. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think particularly actually for the maybe the so-called smaller nations with, with teams with slightly less quality, it's a lot easier to to train your players into doing something that's maybe more parking the bus style and, and sitting back than it is to to play this maybe more progressive kind of football. Uh, but no, I think it's very important because, as Matt said before, because it is knockout football and all it takes is one loss and you're out of the competition and the newspapers will be hounding you out of your job and that's that. Uh, I think that particularly, and Matt actually said it before again, but with Southgate, had he lost, say, it, to, to a Scotland or something, people would have been completely different. Obviously, people were questioning the nil-nil, but in that game, pragmatism got us the point that need, we needed to get through. And because of that, we're, we're where we are now. And everyone's loving Southgate. We've beaten Germany uh, and we're into the semi-finals. So I think it's that that perfectly highlights just how important it is to be pragmatic. And uh, the thing with international football is in the short run, 
pragmatism wins. In the long run, you maybe want that more free-flowing football yeah. because it's more exciting for the fans and they're, they're not going to get bored of it fast, mm. uh, which is something you might see in club football. Uh, and I think that's why people maybe complain about it a little bit more in club football than they do in the international. It's a good point. I was thinking the same thing, really. Um, but I think, actually, one thing that Cesc Fabregas um, a point made when he was on punditry early on was that in club football, with systems so dominant, you actually get some a lot of teams where the individual qualities are limited or the freedom's limited in terms of the ability to be creative. Creative players are maybe a little bit stifled because they've basically been told what to do by the coach, which is a wonderful thing, I suppose, for a lot of players because it gives them definition, it gives them a purpose, it, they know what to do, they know the task at hand. But for the, some of the really good creative you know, individual talents out there, uh, I think Fabregas was sort of arguing that actually these systems can actually be a little bit detrimental to what they can do on a football field. Um, I mean, for example, I suppose in this tournament, we have seen some quite good, excellent individual performances. I think Sterling's been excellent, hasn't he, in sort of this free role in in the advanced area. I think Paul Pogba, despite that, you know, the defensive slip, but was outstanding in the way that he dictated play against Switzerland. And through the whole tournament, really, he was given a licence to play and a licence to get on the ball um, and take matters into his own hands. Uh, do you do you agree with that notion, Matt, that systems can be uh, somewhat negating towards the really top-end creative talent? And do you think that maybe that gives them a platform, the, these major international tournaments actually gives them a platform to strut the stuff and show what they can do when they break out of those systems? I think it's a difficult one. It's not something I thought about, to be honest. I think it's, it's one of those that you can kind of argue it either way, and it, it kind of goes back again to the sort of precariousness of, of the way that England have, have gone about this tournament. I think, you know, you can get away with being pragmatic and not having Jaden Sancho on the pitch as long as you keep winning. But as soon as, as soon as you lose, maybe it turns on its head. Maybe there's questions of you know, Jaden Sancho is a 73 million pound player or whatever he is. He's been fantastic for two seasons in the Bundesliga. I think those sorts of things then will come into it and, and you can kind of, of look at it either way. I think fundamentally, as long as, as teams win, it doesn't particularly matter, you know, in terms of the way that you're playing, all of the, the questions that get asked will completely just be put away. If, if England win the Euros, no one will remember, you know, mm. the, the nil-nil with Scotland. It, it just won't won't make any difference. So I think for, for certain teams... I was going to say... Well, well, yeah, I'm sure that, I'm sure the Scotland fans will, will try and bring that up. But uh, yeah, no, in, in terms of, of sort of individual quality, I think it, it kind of depends country by country as well. I think, mm. you know, Switzerland maybe are set up to give the ball to Zed and Shakiri whenever he's on the pitch, for example. There's there's other sort of, of examples of that. But I suppose that the higher up you are, the better you are. You think of, of Italy, Spain, England, it, it's not just one player. It's kind of mm. it's that system, isn't it, to a certain extent. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. I, I think you can you can sort of argue the case with that. I mean, club thing. football, two of the probably bigger examples that stand out to me really was like Harry Kane under Jose Mourinho's management, where everyone said it was too reliant on Kane, but he finished with the most goals and the most assists in the league. Um, and then, of course, Bruno Fernandes at Man United. Again, uh, many have said Ole Gunnar Solskjaer doesn't really have an, a, an intricate attacking system, but Bruno Fernandes thrives in that really. And Paul Pogba at times, actually, when he's given the license. So those are those are really sort of two examples from my end. But I suppose just as a lasting thought on, on, on international um on this kind of topic and just, just to touch on Matt's point actually when when it's not just Karen Southgate but any manager picks a certain number of players I mean particularly with England though and you know you don't you don't bring in the jaded Sancho but then if you do bring in the jaded Sancho you don't bring in the Jack Grealish it's why didn't you bring Jack Grealish in? and if he doesn't bring 
if you put Sierra Sancho and Grealish in, it's why wasn't Mason Mount playing? If Mason Mount played, it's why wasn't Raheem Sterling playing? So I suppose when you've got so many options, it's you're always going to be, why isn't X playing? When you can't play all of them, but why isn't, you know, why isn't X, Y, or Z playing? Because we do like, I think, to be to have an inquest, don't we? If something goes wrong, we do like to say why something went wrong. We do like to say why isn't someone playing? We don't like to say, well, actually, the players on the pitch are actually quite good. Yeah, well, that's perhaps one of the, the biggest challenges as a, an international manager is kind of juggling your players and making sure that the, the best combination of players for a given game are on the field. And I think Southgate has done really well with that, actually. I think, for example, bringing Saka in uh, was a, a really well-thought-out uh, thing to do against Czech Republic because... Obviously, he dominated him in the Europa League, uh, the, the Czech Republic left back, and uh, he, he's done well. At such the same thing with Sancho in the latest game. I think he, he's thought about the way that England are going to play in a specific game and brought in players to do exactly that. I think you've got to be very flexible as an international manager. And I mean, you can look at Scotland, for example. They're two of their best players are left backs, and they they built a system that allows both of those players to play in that position. Obviously, with the with Tierney as the the left centre back overlapping Robertson a lot of the time, mm. and it really works. Obviously, they didn't do too well in the tournament, but I think they played very well uh, and were quite unlucky generally. Mm. Yeah. Now, I suppose that does pass over to club management as well. I suppose Pep Guardiola and his magical rotating, you know, list of sixty million pound players. It is something. I suppose I'm making a dig there. I'm not even anti Man City, but hey, there we go. Um, so I suppose it's something that passes over depending on what kind of squad you've got to operate with. I actually do think the managers who do have that list at the disposal, even though people say, oh, it's easy, you've got so much quality, must take remarkable man management skills to uh, to 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 keep everyone happy, keep everyone on the toes, really. Anyway, on to uh, second topic, really, which is which is to look at the, uh, at the four teams that made it this far, really. Um, and with a view to they might have gone through or they might have not gone through, but everyone, I suppose, has done well to get here, particularly, and I'd like to start with Denmark, who, for me, are the team of the tournament, regardless of what happened. Uh, you know, Kasper Hulman has done a fantastic job uh, to, well, to to reinvigorate a team that was absolutely on its knees after, you know, two defeats out of two, one of which to Finland, who were rank outsiders. Obviously, that was down to the Christian Eriksen thing. Christian Eriksen almost died. It was tragic. It was awful. It was horrible to see. Um, and it also looked like their their hopes to progress had gone with those two defeats, but a really brilliant uh, win in their final group game uh, reinvigorated that dream. And they've been they've been fantastic ever since. And they're riding an emotive wave, um, you know, spur, instigated by Ericsson's situation. But more important, well, just not more importantly, but very importantly, alongside that. They have a very, very good set of players, don't they? And they're doing a really good job. Whether they should be in the semi-finals or not, in terms of individual quality, probably not, because you know we've seen some fantastic teams go out. But fair play to them for getting here. They're one of the the real teams, aren't they? At the mm. tournament, we talk about systems and we mm. talk about man management and stuff like that. I mean, I think Denmark are a, a pretty perfect example of that. I think they've got a lot of, of quality. Obviously, you go through the team, you look at, at Schmeichel, you look at, at the centre backs of both decent players obviously they've lost Christian Eriksen but they've got other players in that sort of position Mikhail Damsgaard I think has been brilliant for mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. Um, I think Myler at left or right back has been superb yeah. he's one that you know probably a lot of people hadn't necessarily mm-hmm. seen for for Atalanta but he's come come to the fore and, and done really well I think there's there's a lot of quality there but I think the thing that's impressed me the most really with them is that collectiveness obviously we saw that 
off the pit or on the pitch, but kind of off the pitch, if you like, in terms of, of what happened with Christian Eriksen and, and that kind of thing. But in terms of, of on the pitch as well, I think they've they've worked really well together. They are more than the sum of their parts and they've been slightly fortunate. Obviously, they were on the, the easier side of, of the sort of draw for, for the knockout stages, but it's the same with England. You know, you can only beat what's in front of you. They've done their job really, really effectively up to this point. And I think they will give England a, a real game. I think England will win. Um, but I think Denmark really will give them a, a really good test. Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, I think I think they've, since the Ericsson injury as well, they've moved to a back three. And I think Mailer's, Mailer and Co, well, the two wing backs have been fine, but Mailer in particular either can play right wing back or left wing back. And we saw when he was at left wing back, the unbelievable assist that he did with the outside of his boot uh, recently against uh, the Czech Republic. But I mean, uh, it's interesting, you know, the, the back three systems work quite well for a few teams. That, well, it, it, it's been used in particular individual matches. You know, Germany against Portugal ran riot with a back three. England managed to make it work against Germany's back three. But I think with Denmark in particular, it gives them another creative, another method of creation that's a bit more, bit less unpredictable, or a bit more unpredictable, sorry, now that Ericsson's not there in that 10 position. Yeah, no, definitely. And uh, obviously, Mailer, as you both mentioned, he's done incredibly well. He's got a lot of pace. And, and I think that that really helps in getting getting back up the pitch and really in, in the transition. He's very, very good at that. Uh, he, he's actually kind of similar to, to Gosens in, in his Atalanta mm. counterpart, really, mm. in that regard. Uh, obviously, he's only moved this season, but he, he's obviously had, had that experience alongside him and, and maybe learning slightly from him uh, in that wing back role. Um, yeah, alongside that, I think that that Hoiberg uh, has done very well in central midfield alongside Thomas Delaney. I think that midfield is is slightly underrated, really, because there's a lot of quality between the pair of them. Uh, I was going to liken them to Wales, you know, but it's nothing like Wales from uh, the, the last Euros because Wales is very much about a, a collective a collective squad effort, but with two world class players. Mm. Whereas Denmark, I think it's most of the team are kind of a similar caliber. It's just they're, they're a real good unit together. And obviously after what happened to Ericsson, it was really tragic, but it's almost given them superpowers and it's given them that extra belief to kick on and, and, and go that extra mile. Uh, yeah, I've been really impressed with them. And if England is to go, to go out to them, then I wouldn't be too upset. No, I, I wouldn't. It'd be my team to, um, yeah. I, I mean, if England don't win, they would be incredible worthy winners given everything that's happened. It would be very, I mean, they'd be the people's champion, I think, maybe not in England, but they'd be the people's champion of the world uh, for everything they've gone through in this tournament in particular. Um, but I think they probably are, and I mean this with the utmost respect, probably the outsiders for the whole tournament. And if they do get through, it'd still be remarkable. I'd be cheering them on, certainly. But yeah, uh, they are probably the rank outsiders. I mean, the other two, well, I would say the big what the big clash of the titles between Italy and Spain, that's, I mean, if, if Italy managed to go through that, they, they have, for me, been probably the team of the tournament. And we talked about philosophy, we talk about systems and, and getting people to play in a, in a way that opens teams up. It's not too reliant on specific individuals, even though Spinozola had, before his injury, a fantastic tournament. Um, but Italy have, I think, Matt, been... They are essentially a team that looks like they know what they're doing on and off the ball. And it's not always looked like that with some of the big boys. Yeah, no, a brilliantly coached team. Um, I think Roberto Mancini is a, a fantastic manager and I think to do what he's done with them, to get them playing the kind of intricate system, that, as you say, the, the pressing, the off-the-ball stuff, to be able to do that with this group of players, which 
on paper are, are pretty good. You know, there's there's good individuals in there. I think Marco Verratti is a brilliant player when he's at his best. You look at Federico Chiesa, I think is a, a top player as well, but there's not sort of, you know, real top end Champions League quality within that squad, but he's got them playing a system whereby they are, again, more than the sum of their parts. And I think, you know, the, the manager's going to take a huge amount of credit for that. And obviously there's, there's individuals in there um, who are, are absolutely top class. But again, mm-hmm. I, I don't think if you put them up against the best club team, I don't think that, that Italy uh, would have that same sort of quality in terms of on paper. I think they'd give them a good game because the system that they've got, the way that they have played, the continuity in terms of, of the team, I think they've they've done really, really well. I think they probably lack a, a goal scorer um, in terms of an absolute clinical finisher up top on on what we've seen so far. But again, I suppose Joey Mobile has done really well um, over the last couple of seasons in that regard. So mm. I think they're, they're a really good team. They, they do sort of take a lot of, of boxes. I think it's a, it's a tough one to call between them and, and Spain. I think both of them have been sort of impressive in their own kind of ways. I think Spain are a little bit more boring. They're not as obviously good, but I think they are, they are still, you know, a, a real top team. And I think whoever gets to the final out of those two will, will deserve to be there on, on the performances so far. Well, yeah, Spain actually do. I mean, I've watched Spain a number of times and you get the sense that they do a lot of things right, particularly in the midfield, which has always been a strong point. Pedri's had a really, a really good tournament, actually. Um, wonderful young talent from Barcelona. But um, you get the sense that there's a bit of, as opposed to Italy, maybe there is a profligacy up front um, and there is got there. And uh, there is um, also in defence, I suppose, a little bit of a question mark with, as Jordan says, two left-footed centre-backs a few weeks ago you weren't a big fan of and there just seemed to be, I don't know if it's necessarily that, I just think maybe a lack of a, a, a compatibility. Of course, Laporte's only just transitioned to... Um, the big Ramos-shaped hole in the defence, isn't there? And the, mm. the fact that Eric Garcia has even been selected kind of says a lot about that. Mm. He, the fact that he's the, the best right-footed centre-back that they have uh, says a lot about the pool of players that they, they've had to pick from. Mm. But up front as well, I suppose, they've got so much craft in behind. They can build up carefully, patiently. Uh, and actually, Alvaro Morata, for his build-up play, has actually been very good. I think he's held the ball up well. He's linked up with his midfielders. He's come deep. He's come gone long. His movement, I actually think, is up there with some of the best in Europe. But it's his finishing, which isn't up there with the best in Europe. I mean, he's been quite um, blunt in front of goal, missing some particularly glaring opportunities in almost every game that he's played. And everyone has said, even though that he's got all of the link-up play to his bow. I mean, it, I mean, people have said if they had a Vera or a Torres, they'd be storming it right now. And, and maybe you could argue that. But um, I do think maybe, I suppose it sounds a bit, it sounds a bit obvious, I guess, but is, would there be a way, I suppose a bit like Roberto Firmino at Liverpool, Matt, where you don't want Firmino necessarily having the chances, but if he can create for his wider players, then that might be a solution to that. But at present, he seems to be missing far too many, I guess. Yeah, he's not quite the same player, is he, to, no. to Firmino? I mean, Firmino doesn't score a huge amount, but he is sort of integral to the system. I think with mm. Morata, it's a case of he is there to score goals. He just mm. hasn't been particularly brilliant at, at doing that. I think you know, there's enough in that in that Spanish squad, I think, for me, even you know, with um, Morata misfiring, I think you look at someone like Ferran Torres, I think has mm. had some really good moments. I think he can can be a real goal scorer. That's the only sort of thing in that team, isn't it? You wonder 
you know, if if they get to the final or, or in that semi-final, are they going to be clinical enough to, to score the goals that, that, that they will need with, you know, the, the sort of limited chances that you'll get at, at the very top end of the tournament? I think there's there's a good chance that they'll create just about enough chances to, to give Murata the five shots that he needs to, to find the target. But I don't know. It's it's one of those. I think they, they're going to have to find some sort of finishing from somewhere. I think... Ferran Torres would be the one for me to, to sort of provide that more than Morata, but yeah, whoever it is that, that scores the goals, I'm sure they'll create because, as you say, Pedri has been unbelievable. You look at, at their midfield, Thiago Alcantara can barely get a kick, and I think that just sort of sums up how good their midfield trio have been so far. No, it's true. I mean, Moreno as well coming off the bench hasn't been particularly um, oh. potent, does he? So, and you like Moreno. Probably why he's not well, very potent. He got, he got 30 goals in La Liga last season. And, yeah. and I mean, there was a, a great cross from Jordi Alba uh, in, was in the last cross, game. Yeah. I mean, I think Alba's actually had a really good tournament. Yeah. And maybe come back into people's minds in that frame. It's always a very high-end left-back, though, wasn't he? It was, it was more... Oh, yeah. I yeah. think some people forgot about how just how good he was, though. And yeah. I mean, that first-time ball into Moreno, it should have should have been nestled in the back of the net. Unfortunately, it wasn't from Spain's point of view. But yeah, no, I... I think it'll be a tight game, honestly. I, I do think Italy will edge it. I think they'd be more more effective. I think the, the key difference, because they're both playing a 4-3-3, generally yeah. speaking, aren't they? I think that the key difference is Italy have been a lot better in the transition. And I think that's a lot, a lot of that is down to the wingers and that they're a little bit more direct. The midfield's a little bit more leggy. They've got more energy, I think. Maybe less quality. Not not that they're is lacking. Is their midfield three though of Jorginho, Barella, and Verratti is as competitive as it gets. I think if they've got a little bit yeah. of everything in there, and Locatelli comes in it's and scores goals. A very well balanced midfield, isn't it? Mm. Very well balanced. Mm. Barella yeah. in particular, I think he could move anywhere, anywhere he wanted to. And also, you're right. I think you're right in the transition as well. And they've got a slightly more um, a slightly more prolific goal scorer in Immobile when he's not on the floor. They've it's also got yeah yeah it's amazing um, yeah terrible. They also got um, a, a defensive duo who are rolling back the years, aren't they? I mean, Benucci, particularly Chiellini, just age a bit like Thiago Silva, isn't it? At Chelsea, I mean, you just think he's just such a an amazing presence at the back. He's just so calm, composed. I just love him high fiving Benucci and Co. When they do a tackle, it's what you want. To <laughs> yeah, see. it's great it's to see. Isn't it? I think, uh, especially if Italy do go through, I'm going to absolutely make sure that it's because. It's a left foot, right foot partnership and not uh-huh. two left footers. Yeah, I'm going to actually absolutely make sure it's Jorginho's role because <laughs> uh, he's done it. He's had a good tournament. Uh, I've yeah, left sure. it. I've left it deliberately a, a bit short on England because we've already touched on England a bit as anyway. But um, is semi-final still an achievement for for this quite young squad, or 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 are we now? desperate to win or at least get to the final I mean I don't think winning is necessarily not winning sorry is necessarily a disaster the final I think there'd be a lot of people that would have took semi-final before the tournament how it's shaped up now they think final should happen but what do you think on that I think if England go out to Denmark that would be a massive disappointment I think mm. they've done really brilliantly well to to get over Germany a team that's caused them you know plenty of problems in the past that's a big step forward but I think having done that They've got to get to the final. I think there's there's an opportunity as well. I don't think it's it's too often that what will it be five out of the six games or something like that that will be with home advantage. You're not going to get a home tournament again anytime soon. It's not even you know, a home tournament though, is it? It's uh, it's well, no, it's not. But you know, even when it's even when it's managed to be spread all across Europe, you know, England have have been very fortunate in that regard. They've yeah. you know played 
games at home. Everything is in England's favour. They've been on the yeah. right side of the draw. They have to get to the final. I think if they get to the final, then it's almost a free hit because I don't think anybody expected realistically for them to get mm. that far. But mm. from this position, they have to get to the final. Otherwise, you know, we, we talked about the, the pragmatism and all of that, all of those questions that have been squashed so far. Yeah. If they don't get to the final, they all suddenly start coming back out again. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I don't know, Jordan. You, you, he was when Matt off. Well, it's off camera because it's a podcast. But when he was shaking his head, you were nodding your head when I said, "We're well, telling final." I think. Back. I think the big thing, if you look at the tournament from from an outside perspective, I think beating Germany alone warrants success to an extent. I think from the point mm. of beating Germany, we we should be getting to the final. When when you've got Ukraine and Denmark in the next two games. You should be getting to the final. But if you look at the tournament from an outside perspective, I do think, and especially before the tournament, we were looking at that that game against it would have been Germany, yeah. Portugal or France. We were looking at that as a, the, the point where we'd I, probably be out. I said last 16. Yeah, I, I mean, I said the same. And we, we got through that. So I think yeah. it, either way, it would be a success. But from this point, I agree with Mark that it, it's, it would leave a sour taste maybe uh, nope. and we, sh- we should be getting to the final also it's worth noting that England I think I read this somewhere so it must be right but uh, are playing um, the next two games at Wembley yeah that's definitely true but yep. also in front of um, only people from the UK so yeah yeah that's true that's, so there uh, might be some foreign fans from only people who live in the UK so yeah. a bit similar to what England had in Rome but ah, well I know it's Covid inspired but it's still I, there were I, definitely people from England in that stadium, though. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Oh no, yeah. But I, I knew a few expats actually that were there, and they they really? went on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So fun story that, isn't it? Not no one's really interested. Um, but they they loved it. They loved it. Um, and I, and I, I fair play. I'd never get never be less competitive get an England ticket. I don't think <laughs> when you can't get there and only open really to the expats in Italy. But interesting debate that I had yesterday mutual friend of Matt myself and Jordan as well um, don't know if I said it like that but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we have um, yeah so basically it's something I raised actually and it did it already been discussed with Matt before in fact I can't remember who raised it but the, the point was um, whether you would want your club to win a major trophy uh, and I suppose that's up to your imagination what that major trophy is or whether you'd want England to win a major international trophy, like hmm, maybe the European Championships, for example. It's quite topical, isn't it? Um, but I was beaten one to one to, three, one to four, and four people wanted England more than the club, and I wanted Burnley, my club, the club I support and and the you know write for, uh, write about, and so on and discuss. I thought that was the popular opinion. I was wrong, apparently, in that small sample of five. Um, I'm sure that's not reflective of everyone, but generally, and Matt, I know this has been discussed with you, and you are of the same opinion as me, even as a Liverpool follower, writer, supporter. What is the reasoning behind it from your point of view? I think there's a number of reasons. I think your club is something that you kind of follow more frequently. You see them play you know, 38 games a season in the Premier League. You watch them in the Champions League, you watch them in the FA Cup, you know, you're talking sort of 55, 60 games a season and England only comes around every couple of years, assuming that they qualify for the tournament. I think, you know, it's it's just sort of so much more ingrained in your everyday life is, is what your club does. And I think it, it's difficult to sort of transition from 
being interested every single day, you know, the, the day-to-day goings on of, of your club to suddenly a team that you kind of see pop up and be interesting once every couple of years, because let's mm. be honest, the, the qualifiers and the friendlies and all the mm. rest of it, you're not really that bothered. You, yeah. you sort of watch it and it's it's never particularly, never particularly interesting, never particularly mm. exciting. So just from from that perspective, I mean, take the, the sort of, are you an England fan or not out of it? I just think, you know, your, your club is so much, so to me anyway, it's, it's just so much more ingrained in, in your life every day. It, it doesn't really make sense to me that you'd, you'd think about it any other way. Well, yeah, no, I, I take that point. With it. Certainly, you're, you're with your club for roughly 10 months of the season, then you're following transfer activity, aren't you, on, on your social medias and, and your, your various newspapers like Liverpool Echo, throw that in there, and others. Um, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. I sort of, I was thinking about this today. I was trying to think of an analogy. I couldn't really think of anything too exciting, but I did come up with something. It's like, it's like having a marital partner for 10 months, and then in the summer, you have like, a, you know, a, an exciting summer away from a marital partner. Hey, you are? <laughs> Go away to Magaluf. For the Go summer. away to Magaluf. Other countries are available, and yeah, I, I do think I do get that sense. Really, um, I, I can't understand how. And these, and some of these were club fans of the club that watch the club every single week. It's almost the short termism, isn't it? Now that everyone's so embraced and and uh, and, and, and and up to up and joyful with the whole England experience that you almost forget. Well, I don't, and Matt doesn't, but you. But some people seem to almost forget what it means to follow a club, what all of that that goes with it, because at the moment there's all this furore about football's coming home. Absolutely, and I mean, I'm I'm the same as you two, to be honest. I'm I'm a lot more emotionally invested in Everton than I am with England, mm. and although right now England is obviously at the forefront of my thoughts. I think I would still be the same where I'd rather Everton won a trophy. And I think particularly for, for a club like Everton. Yeah. I mean, I've never seen Everton win a trophy in my mm. lifetime. How sad's that? Mm. It, it's, it's awful, really. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, so so for me, I think that's quite an easy one where I would love for Everton, for anything. An FA Cup would be glorious. I'd love that. And I could rub it into my, my mates, whereas if England yeah. win, I'm, I'm celebrating with them. Which you know, it's great in its own right, but... Uh, it's not the same. That's a really good point, actually. I was going to mention that, and I completely well, I well got time to mention it anyway. But the happiness is almost universal. So when you when if England win a major tournament, everyone's on the same level of happiness. So you've not got really any moral superiority or happy superiority or anything. Everyone's happy, and if everyone's happy and contented and overjoyed, then what's the point? You know, and you're, <laughs> you're the least happiest at that point. <laughs> I probably am because I just think, God, you know. Whereas if it's obviously if my if if Burnley won the Premier League, for example, I'll use that to you know. I mean, obviously, I mean, Callum Lester fan. If I'd, we'd have asked him, would he have rather England won or the 2015-16 Premier League? I think we knew we would have known the well. I hope I thought I knew what Tommy's answer was to be honest, but I was wrong. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, the euphoria that would feel. And then well, I used to work in China, and, uh, if people didn't know. And when I used to get recognised for my shirt, oh, what, what, what team's that? I go, Burnley, and they go, uh, who? And they'll say, oh, Premier League, Man United. And they're like, ah, that league, yeah. But <laughs> if, if it came with something like a major trophy like that, and then you can quote that, there is some pride in that, there's some satisfaction in that, there's a happiness to that. Like you said, Jordan, you can banter with others who aren't fans of that club. 
you know, you can do that. Whereas with England, everyone's on the same level. And it's like, well, what, what, where do you go if everyone's on the same level? Yeah, put it this way. When, when Liverpool won both the Champions League and the Premier League, my yeah. phone uh, was light, lighting up from mates, ringing me, texting me, messaging me on anything. Mm. Just giving me so much stick and I would love yeah. to give it back. And I can't yeah. do that if England win. Yeah. Although, for, for argument's sake, I do think that it is great to have kind of that universal... Yeah. element of everyone getting behind the team and everyone loving loving life together yeah uh, and i mean i think that if england do win the win the tournament i think you'll see a lot of people with phil foden's haircut walking around yeah uh, not i know there's me. at least a few of my friends are going to be doing that not for me i don't like dying i'm trying hair. to weasel out of it i'm quite bored oh, i don't do that no dying hair for me no tattoos no dying hair no piercings yeah i'm just all boring like that you can have them though you know not not disregarding anyone else doing that's not for me uh so i'll be mr boring but um, yeah, I just as another point as well, I, I thought, which which is quite true with a lot of clubs, Matt, as well, is the, the effect it has on, on local communities and economies, actually. These, you know, football clubs, Liverpool in particular, really, you go around Liverpool. Uh, I mean, me, many people, I think even Tommy's, Tommy, our friends referenced it, that, that you were to yourself. I don't know, this might be his words, but as, as Scouse, not English, but I imagine you would. Yeah, 100%. There is there is that mentality from people. I'm, I wasn't born in Merseyside. I wouldn't call no. myself that. Um, no. But I, I do understand that. And I think I think Liverpool's a slightly different case to, to some clubs in terms of that mentality, in terms mm. of you know, various social, political reasons, all of mm. that sort of thing. I think, you know, you don't want to tar everyone with the same brush. And, and certainly it's a minority, but there are a minority of England supporters who do make it quite difficult to like the England <laughs> yes, team. Yes, very I think true. You have, to, you have to sort of put those things into context. I think there's, you know, wider sort of things about attitudes towards Liverpool from certain parts of, of the rest of the country and things like that. And, mm. you know, that goes for, for Everton, it goes for Liverpool, the other mm. clubs in the area. It's not, it's not just strictly a Liverpool thing, but... I think even even if you take that to one side, even if I supported a, a team in a different part of the country, yeah. I think I would still feel sort of more more attached, really, to, to my club than, than my country. But yeah, it's it, it's one of those things. It, 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 you, you can sort you can go as deep as you want with this, but yeah. you know, I, I I just I don't know. I, I find it I find it hard to to get behind England for a variety of reasons, and mm. I think. The, the, there's, there's several layers to it that we just don't have time to, to go into. But I think the, the, the very the very top layer, the, to be honest, the very top layer is that it's just not as fun. It's just pretty boring most of the time to watch mm. England. Mm. Whereas I appreciate that. I'm At least in, we have the trailer quote now for the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, 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 do, I, I do accept and appreciate that I'm very, very fortunate to report and... Yeah, be in yeah. attendance at, yeah. at Champions League games, yeah. at Premier League games. That the standard of football and, and the quality and the trophies and all of that stuff has just been incredible. And I think when you do compare that to, you know, playing Moldova in a friendly in the middle of the winter or two games into the Premier League season, are people going to be yeah. quite so enthusiastic about England when that September international mm. break comes around? Mm. No, yeah, you made you made two good points actually before that. As uh, some of which I was thinking of. I mean, there there is uh, to be fair. I'm going to as a disclaimer. There are a minority of Burnley fans that do make. Uh, I don't think they make sporting Burnley difficult. It, it, there's been a few embarrassing situations. I won't go into those. You could probably Google them, but. Um, I do think, again, I think that's a minority very much. I mean, you see the social media and, and the majority are actually, you know, 
you know, people who want to support the team, people that don't want to get involved with the controversies. But I suppose that's the same for, for all clubs. But with England, you do get that stereotype sense, Jordan. I kind of agree with Matt here. And I, I, I've thought about, I mean, after the England game against Germany, and I've messaged you this and, you know, you were sort of, well, <laughs> I'm not going to say what you put back, but uh, I think it was tongue in cheek. So in a more professional sense, I find it difficult and, and, and Matt will probably agree and you might do. Um, with the with the attitudes of of some in terms of, for example, everyone saw the picture of the crying German girl. She might be a very rich crying German girl now. That's beside the point. But some of the some of the messages that she received, some of the abuse that she got, is absolutely disgusting. Uh, the the fans that felt the need to boo taking the knee, the fans that felt the need to boo the German national anthem, the general lack of sportsmanship on display at times has been quite ridiculous. Um, and, you know, I say that as someone who jokingly banters and, and, and pretends to, you know, to just for the sake of competition, to be arrogant, to, to have a laugh at things. But they're taking it too far, isn't there? Definitely not helped by some of the political decisions that have been made by this country over time that makes a lot of countries look at us and say, actually, we don't like them very much. Well, I, I agree with a lot of what you said, uh, particularly like the booing, booing the national anthem, booing taking the knee. It's, re- it's just really awful stuff, and it's not something you want to associate I mean, yourself with. And isn't and it that maybe an extra reason why we're all more in favour of our club than we are with England mm. because mm. of that kind what, of what, association? Although I would well, say with the knee, we don't actually know how many fans would. We haven't really seen full capacity stadium. Yeah. Not really seen that, and I imagine there would be some level of, I, I just think with that, and I'm not going to go into it too much, but there, in a democracy, you absolutely have the right not to agree with what they do for whatever reason. We've seen many other reasons, Mark, but don't react to it. You know, don't react to it. That's after the respect that the players have said why they're doing it. Don't react to it. Don't feel the need to do that. Just ignore it. Don't, you know, don't. Particularly don't when you are representing your country to an extent, at least, because uh, as you kind of mentioned, other countries will look at that and say, oh, it's the English again. Look at them. Yeah. Look, the, the the crying German girl. It's awful. Some of the things that have been said about her. Why do I feel I like think, there's a book coming? Well, no, I think it's okay <laughs> to have a laugh though. Uh, when you see a, a crying a crying kid at the end of a football match, I think that's okay. I think. I, look, I think there's, that more there's, above there's anything better else. Uses of, there's better Thank uses you, Matt. Thank well, you. Put it that way. Yeah. Oh right. But all oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I remember when I was little and when Wayne Rooney left Everton and I remember being in floods of tears. I wish people had recorded me and I'd have, I'd have happily taken a taken a little donation for that. As well, and I know, and I know I'm harping on, but again, like when you see Germans like Jürgen Klinsmann and some of the fans who are so sportsmanlike in the, in the response to that game, it just makes you feel even more embarrassed. And you just think, well, you know, I don't know. Just, I, we could go on to this forever, but I just want to last in points. Well, just both thoughts on this. What do you think when you see people who in the public eye, clearly aren't football fans who try to jump on the bandwagon, maybe Boris Johnson, for example, who watches the game, shouts, oh, goal, and then he goes, oh, it's, it is a goal, isn't it? Yeah. And it's just like, it, it boils my blood that people try and take <laughs> this as an opportunity. And it's almost like everyone who's shouting it's coming home but couldn't name a name on the team sheet. It does wind me up to a point. I don't know if that's just me. I mean, some people will say, oh, everyone deserves to be happy and enjoy the moment. Some people exploit it. And yet, you know, some people I just don't think really get it. I think you have to respect people who do only like football when it is an international tournament. But I, I do agree that when when it comes to kind of like political point scoring, I think it's just a bit... As, as a disclaimer, K.S. Starmer, so K.S. Starmer, who's done it, actually does support Arsenal and actually does have a season ticket and actually has spoken about football in interviews before 
whether he should or not, but he has been asked about it. Whereas other people who've done it quite clearly aren't football fans. And it was a bit like when David Cameron said the Aston Ham comment or Aston Villa and then West Ham, wasn't it? Couldn't make his mind up. I mean, again, it's jumping on the international bandwagon. It sort of devalues it a little bit, Matt, for, for you? Or? I don't think it's too cynical to suggest that they're doing it for the votes, aren't they? They're no. doing it to look, to look popular. They're doing it because, you know, there was what, 21 million people watching the game. And if you can be seen as being one of one of those working class football <laughs> fans. I don't quite know how, you know, someone like Boris Johnson can try and even paint himself oh, yes. in that sort of light. <laughs> away from Euros, away from discussions like that, uh, there is, well, there's club football. And uh, there's been quite a lot that, I mean, last week, we we quite quite brilliantly previewed, you know, Espirito Santos, Tottenham and Rafa Benitez to Everton days before they went and then it was still relevant for the whole thing. But as, you know, it was quite actually, you know, it was somewhat disappointing uh, I begrudgingly admit not to have Jordan's thoughts on Rafa Benitez as appointment. I think because you summed up, I think because I, I listened to it back. I think you summed up what I would have said quite well. I mean, we did discuss it quite at, quite at length last week, so I won't touch on it too. Much, too but much. you're allowed your you're allowed your say. Look, I'm I'm not happy with the appointment for for various reasons, not least because of the association with Liverpool. And I mean, all you've got to do really is think about that that first derby. <laughs> when he's going to be speaking about Liverpool in a in a positive manner, it's just not going to be a, a nice experience. But I think now he has been appointed. Um, I think that Evertonians do need to all kind of collectively get behind him and support him, and not be bringing in banners for the first game and kind of. <laughs> I will say this: I think he's the eclipsed, carpet from beneath him before he even starts. I think he's uh, eclipsed uh, Steve Bruce as the most hated manager by a fan base in the league. And actually, it's quite interesting just to hear something. Did you ever see this happening, Matt? As a, as a, you know, you obviously probably loved Rafa Benitez back in the day. He loves Liverpool. Liverpool fans love Rafa Benitez. I never saw this happening. No, I think Rafa is uh, he's a strange, strange <laughs> character. He seems to he seems to love this sort of thing. I think Chelsea was was an obvious example of it. He went there; they all hated him. He did quite well. They still hated him, and he left. <laughs> it's just like could you be bothered doing that again? It's going to be 10 times worse at Everton. It's going to be really, really weird. The, the first game of the season, we, we think there's going to be you know, full stadiums and oh, stuff like that. I mean, it's... At it's home as be, well, the first game. It's going to be fascinating to see. I think Everton have got a decent start to the season, actually. Yeah. It's quite favourable, which I think... Um, We'll go either way then though can't it if they have a bad start it's even worse that, that's it, it? As, as soon as he loses a game yeah. the pressure is the pressure is on him um i mean i think the the first anfield derby of the season is Ooh. in april and i'd be surprised if he was still there to be honest i just think yeah, yeah. you know it, it i think if you take if you take liverpool out of it i think it makes sense i think he's a really good manager i think he's yeah. pretty much you know as as good as what everton could attract at this moment in time. I think obviously no one expected Carlo to leave, but he's he's left and realistically you're not going to get another sort of version of, of him. No, um, no. I think I think he's a really good manager and I think he'll he'll do his best. He'll do a really good job, but I just I worry for him. I think it's it's easier to do a good job with Chelsea, you know, at, at that particular time than it is to do the same thing with Everton. And I just wonder if, you know, he, he even if the best case scenario is he finishes fourth and he wins the FA Cup. I think there'd still be Everton fans who are just like, yeah, 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 but it's Rafa. You're talking I, to I, I, I just, I, I just don't think he can win, is essentially, even yeah, if he yeah. wins. I think he's maybe on the wrong side of the hill. Uh, and I think that's one issue that a lot of Evertonians have. I think he's somebody that's kind of been there, done that. He's gone to China, he's gone to Newcastle. Not, not wrong with well. China. There's nothing wrong with China. I'm yeah. sure he's earned a lot of money through yeah. doing that as well. Yeah. 
but he's come back and he's just he's not the same manager that he was. Uh, and I, I would have personally rather gone for someone up and coming, someone hungry, maybe a, a Graham Potter, someone like that. Rafa he's, might be hungry. Yeah, yeah he, he might well be. But yeah, anyway, I, I'm not too happy, but I do hope that Evertonians can find a way to to put that to a side and get behind him. I actually thought Rafa Benitez would have been a good shout for Tottenham. I actually thought that Nuno Espirito Santo would have been a good shout for Everton. But I also thought Arteta would have been a good shout for Everton and Ancelotti would have been a good shout for Arsenal. And ironically, yeah. they both went the other way. Uh, and then and then Nuno Espirito Santo to Tottenham. But I think Espirito Santo suffered, or Nuno suffered, being the, I don't know, 29th in line for the job. Uh, because obviously Antonio Conte was set to join. Tottenham fans were really excited. Antonio Conte didn't go. And they've had a lot of other names linked. Ten Hag, bit of excitement there. That didn't happen. Gattuso, they didn't want that for reasons outside of football, really. Um, and then eventually you get to Nuno Espirito Santo and it's a bit of a, uh, a bit of a, I wouldn't say overwhelmingly negative response to it, but it's a bit flat. Uh, but I suppose the whole situation at Tottenham's a bit flat now, isn't it? Will Cade stay? Will Kane go? That'll be a big definite. That'll be definitive to how their season goes, I suppose, won't it? It's very sort of similar to Everton in that they've ended up with a manager that you don't think quite fits, but only because the, there wasn't really an obvious fit. I think mm. whoever either of these teams had have gone for, I think there'd be a lot of people looking at it and thinking it was a bit of an odd move. You know, even yeah. if it had been a Graham Potter, Everton have kind of been down that route and, and it didn't particularly work. They've been down other routes that didn't work. And mm. yeah, for, for Tottenham, I mean, it's 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 a really weird situation for them. I mm. think you can understand why Harry Kane would want to leave, but mm. equally, is anybody going to put that sort of money on the table that will tempt them? I'm not not convinced that, that they will. I think I think Nuno is probably as good as, as they could have got, but mm. at the same time, like you say, it's like 500 in line to, to get that yeah. job. He's gone into that new job now, knowing that he wasn't the first choice. He wasn't the one that they wanted. He wasn't even like in the top five. Like you're looking a long, long way down that list. And mm. I don't know, it's, it's it could work, but again, it, it just doesn't feel quite comfortable. My new no appreciation t- tweeted quite well. Uh, t- like it if you haven't liked it. But it was uh, it was one of those really what 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 sort of understood that he'd done a very 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 good job at Wolves and the only bad season he's had at Wolves was last season when Jimenez was injured and they'd just come off the back of a man, a huge exhausting campaign where they got to the last stage of the Europa League I think they finished sixth as well no they didn't I think they just finished seventh, seventh yeah finished seventh in that season as well but still a remarkable run considering they kept the league form and they did really well in, in the Europa League and it all kind of it didn't well it didn't completely fall apart they survived. Uh, despite all the injuries they had, despite the inconsistencies, but it was a bit of a, an underwhelming end. But what he did get good at Wolves was he got them organised, he got them you know, working quite hard, being hard to beat. It doesn't sound very exciting, but at the moment, Tottenham's defence is a shambles, so maybe that is kind of a good thing. Doherty has never been suited to a back four, at least in the Premier League, but as a wing-back with Reggie on... I actually see there being a bit of potential with with the with the Nuno ideo- ideology of the three at the back and the wing backs, but he didn't play that in Spain. Of course, he did play uh, back four, so there is a possibility that it goes to that. And of course, if he's without Harry Kane, I mean, it's the it's the wor- one one of the worst, most difficult jobs to do ever take over a season, whether he goes or not. But if if he does leave Kane, it the the season upon when he leaves is the worst one, isn't it? That first initial season when they don't have the talisman. 
is Nuno the, the calibre of name to keep Harry Kane? Maybe not. Obviously, the, there is the issue of someone actually putting that putting up that price and the fact that he's locked in with this contract. But if, I think if he really wants to leave, he's very much capable of driving that transfer himself. I, I think it's just maybe an uninspiring choice, really. And I think that's maybe one of the reasons that the fans aren't too happy. I think had, had they been in a situation where they needed a manager this time last season mm. or the end of last season, I'll mm. say, because obviously with the, the pandemic and it all mm. moving around a little bit, where... He had just come off the back of two pretty good seasons of Wolves. I think a lot of fans would have been much happier. Mm. And I think you have got to kind of allow for the injuries that he's had this season. Mm. But on the same, on the, on the other hand, they've been very, very poor, even without Jimenez. Poorer mm. than you would have expected. Mm. They've been bottom of the Premier League for sprints. So that maybe quite leaves a question mark over the intensity argument. Yeah. It's just, as I say, uninspiring. What about Vieira to Palace? That came out of the blue, that one. It did. I, I don't know quite what to, to make of that, to be honest. It's neither do Palace fans, I don't think. A bit, a bit, a bit confused, a bit shocked. One yeah, thing I do know is the Nice fans. They're, they're very happy to be the back of him and they, they're not confident. I, I saw one Nice fan who had put 1,000 euros on Crystal Palace to get relegated when he saw that he'd yeah. gone to Palace. So I think that yeah. says all you all you need to know about their perspective. He did quite a solid job, didn't he, at, uh, in, at New York. Uh, New York City was obviously owned by. Um, by, by Manchester City, but of course, very different managing in the MLS as opposed to managing in Liga. And I think he did okay at Nice in his first season. He did okay, nothing spectacular, but okay. And the second season, it's kind of all fallen off a cliff, hasn't it? But uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's a risky one, especially with Palace's current situation. Lot out of contract, Eze <laughs> out till Christmas at the least, and Zaha wanted to leave. Yeah, they're in a right mess, aren't they? They've hardly got any players left. They've got, you know, I think, what was it, like 13 players that were out of contract. I think a couple of them have signed extensions and, and will stick about, but you're still looking at a, a huge job. And it's not, again, it's it's an uninspiring appointment. They've gone through a couple of play, uh, a couple of coaches. I think Nuno would have been a really good option for them. Um, an option that I think a club like Palace wouldn't really have warranted. I think it would have been a step down for him to yeah. go to, to Palace, particularly with the situation that they're in. It's it's a really, really tough job, that I think. And mm. I think, well, I think it'll go one of two ways with him. I think he'll either be brilliant and he'll have sort of two or three years there and move on to a bigger and better club, mm. or he'll have two or three games there. They lose 5 0 and he gets sacked. The Boa style. The, the one the one point with the the losing so many players is that I think they've they've Gained about three hundred thousand pounds a week on in terms of a wage bill. That's that's what they've kind of. Which is the half. So yeah, maybe. So so it might they might have told Vieira that he's he's going to have an opportunity to spend some money and spend those wages, and I think that from his perspective, he'll have needed that kind of assurance because otherwise it's a poison chalice, isn't it? I think Lucian Favre would have been a, a great appointment because he's done very well in similar kind of middle middle yeah. of the middle of the table jobs. And, and kind of turn them turn them around and, and got them climbing up the table effectively. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, it'll be an interesting one. He's a bit of an unknown quantity, really, because he's not that, that much experience, but yeah. he knows the Premier League. People know him, people respect him. It'll be interesting. Yeah. The I mean, Wilfred that... Zaha thing, by the way, is just just to go off on a complete tangent. I mean, yeah. that is, that's bizarre. I mean, every summer he wants to go, he wants to, to go somewhere and, and nobody really ever comes in for him. So, yeah. I don't know. I think that the time might have passed for for him being, you know, a target for for a better club and a bigger club. And 
Yeah, on that, I think if Grealish goes, I'd be straight on Zaha's door. I just think um, he would cost less than Grealish would be sold for. And he does have that similar desire to take players on, create things, make things happen from that left-hand side. He just doesn't get the numbers for me. He just doesn't, you know, he's, he's, he's one of those players that'll dribble and dribble and dribble, but, you know, he's not he's not going to get you 15, 20 goals, is he? He's just watch, he's a watch good player. This he, watch this space. Yeah, he, he's, not, he's, he's not absolutely... Elite, I don't think. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, lastly, uh, on, on confirmed, we, we'll, we'll stick with confirmed at the moment. Jaden Sancho to Man United, the least worst kept, well, the worst kept secret, I suppose, in about seven years of, of negotiation with, with Borussia Dortmund. Of course, not actually seven years because not been there for seven years, but um, they are, yeah, I mean, it's 73 million. It's come down from the 120 million euros of last year. Um, and I mean, it's a great signing, isn't it? There's no, there's no two ways about looking at it. Can play right wing, left wing, off the forward. Uh, so you've got the versatility. But also, I think one thing I noticed when United played in that Europa League final, they had a full eleven out and no one to bring off the bench. Now they'll probably have a Mason Greenwood or a Rashford or a Cavani or a Sancho, and that's a big thing, isn't it? In the in, in some big games, particularly in Europe, good signing. I think it's a good sign. I mean, the numbers that he's put up over the last few seasons has been incredible, particularly for his age. I think he's done very, very well at Dortmund. I think that was a perfect move for him at that time. And is it the right time to step up? Probably, yeah. I think he fills fills a hole in the United squad on that right-hand side. I would maybe question the fact that he's he's maybe done better on the left. Mm. Uh, he's looked better, at least, on the left for Dortmund. And that's the position Rashford plays. That's maybe the position that Martial's best at. It, there's a bit of a overfilling on that left side, but yeah, no, I think it's it's destined to be a good sign, in particularly given his age. Concur? Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a bargain in terms of the transfer fee. I think to be honest, I think it would have been a bargain if they'd have just done it last summer. I don't really understand why it's taken them you know two summers to to sort of end up paying that money. They've they not, cut about thirty million off, haven't they? Of course they have, yeah. But I mean, what's thirty million to Manchester United? It's it's not it's a lot huge... to Liverpool, though, isn't it? Of course, yeah. That's that's why Liverpool. <laughs> that's why Liverpool didn't go for him. No, the wage, the wages he's on. I think Liverpool would have loved to have signed him. Of course, you would. Yeah. But I think he's on, you know, double the wages that a Van Dijk or a Salah is on, and, and that's why Liverpool weren't interested. But no, he's he's a fantastic player, and I think when he's when he's that age, you've got him for for the next ten years. I think he's he's going to prove to be a bargain. I think. Or he gets a massive sell onto a Spanish giant if they actually get cash injection over the next few years. Maybe they join the Super League or something like that. <laughs> in the new stadium? With no, the... I don't know. I don't, know. I, don't, I don't want to speculate. But yeah, no, that, that rounds that off. Uh, be sure to, as I said at the start, like, comment, subscribe, not like, comment, subscribe, like, review, review and comment if you want and subscribe. Subscribe is the most important thing. Listening is important too. But uh, I'd rather you just subscribed and left nice reviews. Uh, if you listen, that's a bonus. Um, yeah, Matt, where can we find you? I should always say this at the start, really, but if anyone's still listening. Yeah, uh, anywhere across the Liverpool Echo, Blood Reds YouTube channel, podcast channels, Twitter, anywhere, really. I, am, uh, I get about a bit. Get about a bit. Jordan runs a lot, but he's not very active on these <laughs> uh, on these on these tweets. Uh, so I'll just I'll just promote me um, at the Johnny Bentley for all good opinions, sport and sometimes unsporting. Uh, not unsporting, non-sporting. Uh, sometimes unsporting <laughs> too. Unsporting. Sometimes unsporting too. To be fair, but as I noted before, I don't believe in nasty unsporting behaviour like Jordan. I believe in uh, lovely, <laughs> lovely respect for all and sportsmanship across the board, particularly from all England fans. But lastly, is it coming home? Is it coming yes. home? 
Yes. Coming home. See, I, I, I'm not quite as confident. I'm probably going to... I'm not going to use those words, but I will say yes. England are going to win. There you go. It's confirmed then. Absolutely fantastic. Two Paul the Octopuses. On, Should have on asked the, Alan on, what his thoughts were. I think, he, I, I, think he's, I think he messaged saying he thinks it's coming home, so you never know. That's, Perfect. Uh, that's, Just so that's, that's fantastic. You know, that is, that is wonderful. And on that note, take care, stay safe. In these crazy times, we don't know what's happening. 